Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, got a lot of people traveling. And in weeks past, I was that guy traveling. I just spent three weeks in Tokyo. So if I slip out of Konnichiwa or Domoregato or anything <laughs> like that, just say, hey, man, you're back in Texas. It's y'all. You know, just say that. I might try to order some breakfast tonight, so just say, hey. <laughs> it's, it's nighttime. Um, I think most folks know me here. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Kyle. Um, my wife and I have been coming here since 2008. I had to do a double take since I saw that. Like, 2008? You know. Uh, it's been almost 10 years. Um, some folks may remember Sunday school back on Sundays. You know, my wife and I, we, we got to help out with that. Uh, mostly you'll see me helping out here and there with the band. Um, that's uh, music's a big part of life for me. Uh, that's that's how I met my wife. Um, we were both students at Crew, and she was leading the band. And she says, "Hey, we we need a bass player." I said, "I think I know what a bass guitar is. Uh, she's kind of cute. Let me join the band." <laughs> that's how some people interpret the events. That's not. Maybe I had ulterior motives. I don't know. Um, yeah, but through that band, I got to know my wife and her family, and uh, a little bit she got to know mine, and uh, that was just a sweet season of life for me. The current season I'm in is pretty good, too. So, um, We've got a little two-year-old daughter, two and a half, running around. You might see her. Um, I think she's in the nursery right now. So uh, that's me. Um, I'm like everybody else serving at Alamo Stone. I'm bivocational, which means I'm not here for the money. So I'm a, I'm a civil engineer by day. If you want to talk hydraulic modeling or spreadsheets afterwards, um, I'm off the clock. So don't, <laughs> I'm off the clock. Um, that, that's enough about me. If you'd like to know more, we can chat at Chick-fil-A or, or, or whatever. Um, if you got ink and paper or a digital Bible, why don't you flip over to Colossians. It's a small letter in the New Testament. Um, I can't give you a page number. Wish I could. Um, but we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3. And, uh, you know, this kind of makes me think of New Year's in a weird way. Because that's when I got the email Wes sent out saying, hey, if going to do a summer series about people speaking over their favorite verse. If, if you want to speak, let me know. This is a great opportunity to Alamo Stone because you get to pick your own topic. Um, Jody's not here, but I know the first time he spoke, he had to preach on tithing. Um, I think Jay and Daniel, when they spoke, had to talk about moral purity, just difficult, tough subjects, and I just get to pick my own, so I, I, feel, very, I feel very honored. Um, We'll be, we'll be looking at Colossians 3, 12, and 13. So let's, let's go ahead and read that. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Paul's in the middle of talking about our old life before Jesus Christ and then talking about the life afterwards. 
the things we're striving for versus the things we're trying to leave behind. We've all got those things we're not, we're not proud of. We're trying to leave those behind. If we're believers in Christ, we're trying to strive for those good things he's called us to do. And this is right where this verse is. Before we dive into that, 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 whole, that, that day in, day out struggle, let's take a look at who Paul was. Some of us know him pretty well. Um, most of us think of him as a, we put him up on a pedestal. He's that guy. He's the guy we all strive to be. But when, when Paul writes this, he is a, it's about 62 A.D., He's near the end of his life. Most, most scholars put him being martyred at 64 and 67 A.D. He's, he's towards the end of his life. He's probably writing this under house arrest from Rome, uh, possibly in a Roman prison. So he's, he's, he's an older man. He's seen it all. He has, he's gone through three different missionary trips. He's, he's planted churches. He's been beaten. He started riots and kind of stood in the midst of those riots. He's been run out of town. He, he's seen it all. There's not much that would scare Paul, I don't think. Uh, but he was not always this, this juggernaut, this hero that we look up to. There was, there was also this guy named Saul. I think we, most of us can remember Saul. Remember the, the first time we hear about Saul, Stephen is being stoned the first martyr of the church. Stephen was one of the first deacons. He's elected to make sure the widows are getting food. And that day, God called Stephen to speak the truth against the leaders. The leaders and people in power, they didn't like it. Said, we need to get rid of this guy. So as Stephen is speaking the truth, they begin to stone Stephen. And who's right there in the middle of the crowd? Saul. He's holding coats for the guys throwing the rocks at Stephen. Say, hey, don't get yourself dirty. Let me hold that coat. That's the man, that's the history of the man writing this book. The next time we hear about Saul, he's characterized as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of God. Breathing in and out. It's, that's what's sustaining him. He's marching to Damascus with these orders to persecute the church of God. That's the man writing this letter. Or that, that used to be the man, thankfully. But, I, I love it. Saul's marching on the way to Damascus. He has his agenda. He's waging a war with God. He thinks he's serving God. Who does he meet on the road to Damascus? Jesus. And Jesus doesn't slam or judge him or condemn him. He breaks his heart, though. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's heart is broken, and Saul realizes he's been blind this whole time. This great man who knows the law backward and forward, he knows the Pharisee law back and forward. He's probably the smartest guy in the class. His heart is broken when he meets Jesus because he's, he's going the wrong way. And some, most of us know the rest of the story. Saul goes on to, 
to write most of the New Testament. Goes on all those missionary journeys. He's shipwrecked. He goes on. He does all these things for the gospel. He goes from breathing threats and murder. God uses him to breathe life and plant churches. I hope that excites you. I hope so. It gives me hope when I think about the mistakes I've made, but I know God is in my life and the things he can change. It gives me hope. And Paul, is, he's an old man as he writes this. He's, he's come that far. God has brought him that far. God is doing things through him. And he's, he's writing to this, this little town at Colossae. Forgive me, I'm not a Greek speaker. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. But he's writing to this little town. Paul never got to visit there. Like a lot of the letters he wrote to, he, he planted the church. He was there. And then he hears about something going on. Say, hey, we've got to correct this. He writes a letter. He never got to go to Colossae. I'm sure he wanted to. But it's an exciting little town. Not because they raise sheep there. Not because that's the only thing going on. It's exciting because the church plant Paul planted at Ephesus they send out someone who plants a church at Colossae. It's one of the first church plants of a church plant. And that's a beautiful thing. The church is growing. This is a rapid time of growth for the church. Under tremendous persecution, God is growing his church. He's taking people like Saul who are trying to murder the church, and he says, you're my guy. I'm going to use you to grow the church. So that's... I kind of see this almost as a, a spiritual grandfather writing to his grandkids. Maybe it's because I've got a little daughter and I see her with her grandparents all the time. Maybe, I, maybe I'm reading into that. I don't know. But it's, it's his spiritual grandkids. And he's, he's heard good things about this church plant. We see that in chapter 1, verses 3 and 8 says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Right? He's, he's wanting to encourage this church. Think about it. If, if you and your family or our church was known for that, your great love for God and your great love for his people, that is a life well spent. You love God and you love other people. He's saying, I've heard about that. I want to encourage you in that. Keep going. And then as we move through chapter 1, verses 9, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of what his will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. Why do you need this wisdom and understanding? Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience, and with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're ever at a loss for how to pray for someone, I would point you straight to this passage. It's such it's encouraging and uplifting. We're never going to be able to not need God's strength, 
going to need that strength. You're going to need his wisdom. You're going to need his encouragement. There's always work for us to do, right? It talks about there's, there's works for us to do. There's always a reason to be thankful. Even when good times and bad, there's always a reason to be thankful. He reminds them of the simple but profound thing. He's delivered us from darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son, Jesus. Paul's going to do a lot of reminding of the simple and fundamental things in this letter. I love it. But as he's reminding them of these simple things, he has to begin to the reason, he begins to move into why he wrote this letter. Even in this small town among the sheep and the shepherds, false teachers have begun to infiltrate that little church there. We don't know if they're inside or outside the church. Some people think it was uh, Judaizers trying to put Jewish law on top of the message of Christ. Some people think uh, Gnosticism, all these different things. They were trying to take away from the simple message of the gospel. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I can hear my parents and other parents preaching that to me as we're about ready to graduate high school, right? I hear this verse, that's the high school graduate message. Make sure no one takes you captive. Again, I see a grandfather or a parent writing to their their little children. I think we can agree that there are a lot of different messages being preached out there that want to take us captive. That word is also like spoil. Make sure no one spoils you. It's the idea that two two enemies have gone to war and they've captured you. They've taken you away. They've carried you off. You're theirs now. Make sure no one carries you off and takes you captive with empty philosophy and this deceit that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus. Make sure no one takes you away. We want a little more description about this deceit that's being taught or preached at Colossae. We go to the end of chapter 2, verses 20 and 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to, here it goes again, human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's starting to get into it. We're moving from our old life. We want to leave sin behind. We want to move into a new life, new works. Only the power of the gospel can do that. Right, as Paul moved from breathing threats and murder to the church to, to planting churches, only the gospel could do that. And yet there's these people in the church trying to preach that, hey, 
we'll just add in a little bit of the Jewish law. If you do these things, hey, don't, don't handle that, don't taste, don't touch. Mankind can't help but build little laws and little rules so we feel in control, right? But these are of no value of moving us from a life, old life in sin, to the new life to walk in Jesus Christ. They're of no value. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I, I don't think I... I don't think I've ever heard too many people use that word indulge. When's the last time you heard the word indulge? Anybody? I, uh, I don't go on Twitter or Facebook much, but I went ahead and threw a search out there. And we mostly use the word Twitter or uh, indulgence to describe something along the lines of, hey, you've worked hard all year. Why don't you take a spa day? It's a box of chocolates. Indulge a little bit. You deserve it. That's how we usually use the word indulge, right? You, you, you've earned it. Take a little bit. You know, go to the spa. Buy that jewelry. You know, whatever. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with this show, Parks and Rec. Anybody? There's a... <laughs> All right, I got one. Um, there's, there's some characters on that show. They have what's called Treat Yourself Day. And the idea is you've been working hard all year. Whatever you want, treat yourself. You want that jewelry? Treat yourself. Buy it. You want that meal? Treat yourself. You want that, that clothes? Whatever. Treat yourself. And there's this character that struggles with this idea. He's an accountant. He's frugal. He's with his money. He's like, why are y'all spending all this money? And he doesn't get the idea of indulgence and treat yourself. And being the nerd that he is, he walks by the comic book store and sees the real-life Batman suit. And he says, that thing's not practical, it's expensive. And his friends finally get him. They say, treat yourself, you've earned it. So he buys the Batman suit and walks out around the mall <laughs> in this Batman suit. Why? Treat yourself, you've earned it. That's how our culture uses it. And sometimes maybe that's how we take it with sin. Ah, I'll treat myself. It, it's been a while since I messed up. Uh, you know, maybe I'll just indulge in this once. Um, when Paul uses this word indulge, it's, it's almost like there's an appetite that, that, that's had. Like you're hungry. You're really hungry. And then you eat. And that appetite's gone. That's right, there's, there's plenty of food, the appetite is being fed, and you've got a plan to eat tomorrow. That's the indulgence of the flesh. It's, it's ongoing, there's a plan for tomorrow. That's the indulgence of the flesh he's talking about. There's a plan, that appetite for sin is satisfied. And Paul is trying to say, only the power of Christ and the gospel of Christ can move you from indulging in sin to walking in what he calls the new life. Only Christ can. Philosophy can't do that. You know, there's, there's a self-help book. You can throw a rock and hit a self-help book. If you go to a bookstore, if anybody still goes to bookstores, you know, those, those don't, those can't bring about that change to stop 
indulging in the flesh. So what is, where are we moving to? This new life, how do we, how can we describe it? Well, if we move ahead a little bit to chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And as we read this, kind of take notes maybe on key words and say, I want that in my life. I want to be around people who are like that. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Anybody so far say, I, I need that in my life, I want that in my life, I wish people around me had that in my life. If that's not enough, in verse 14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together, perfect harmony, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Who here is not looking for peace? You, you can go look everywhere. People are trying to sell ways to get peace. You can only find that in Christ. Teaching one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I wish my life was characterized by all these things. Compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. You ever been in a situation where you just look at the person next to you and like, just get it together. Deal with your own stuff. I wish I was better at bearing with someone else, bearing with others. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. This is, uh, it's easy to think of these things in the context of me, right? We're, we're always easy to think me. I need to be kind, I need to be humble, meek, all these different things. Paul's describing a community. He's describing a family. If you're just one person, there's no need to bear with other people. You don't have to put up with anybody. That's why you're alone, probably. There's no reason to forgive. He's describing a community. Can you imagine a group of people who look like this? I, count me in. Kind, meek, patient. They're bearing with one another. They're forgiving. They're not, that, that implies they're not perfect. But they're forgiving each other. I want to be a part of that people. Plus there's music. There's hymns, songs, spiritual hymns. Oh, count me in. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. That city on the hill, that should be the church. We should be described in Colossians. We should be that community that people look at and go, something different about those people. 
There's kindness, patience, meekness. They're bearing with one another. They're not perfect, but they, they resolve their issues. There's no feuds or bad blood. That's the big thing on social media. Oh, there's a feud. There's none of that. There shouldn't be anyway. We're not perfect. There's a, there's a, this is what, uh, if we go back to Colossians 3.12, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is the holy part, right? That's, that's an old word, maybe better term, consecrated. Now we don't, who here has used the word consecrated in the last 48 hours? <laughs> Me neither. I only used it because I was reading and preparing for this. Um, but at a young age, I, I knew what consecrated meant. Um, my mama's here. I'm going to embarrass my mama a little bit. Um, I knew in my house, even at a very young age, we had consecrated dishes. Right? <laughs> Maybe you had this in your house too. There's a set of dishes that we don't use day to day. Oh, I knew, don't grab that plate and put my PB&J and my Cheetos. Don't, don't do that. I knew you couldn't do that. If I saw someone else doing that, I'd be like, hey, you're, no, you can't do that. <laughs> it was contrary to the nature of that plate to use it. There's the silly old sandwich and chips. Right? And that's, that's, that's silly. That's funny. Maybe you had that, those dishes or that room in the house that, hey, that's for special occasions. Right? That's how the people of God should be, think of themselves. Not, that, not in a prideful way. Not in a boastful way. But the people of God are, are separate. They're, they're for something special. Right? We should be set apart. If the people of God are characterized by humility, meekness, patience, kindness, forgiveness, and bearing with one another, that's what we should be characterized by. It's out of, it feels weird if the people of God are characterized by what Paul talks about earlier. Sexual morality, impurity, coveting, idolatry. That should have no place in the people of God. Again, we're not perfect. But we have to think, as you and me, as we, we should be consecrated, set apart. I have to leave the old things behind. There is a new life to walk in. By God's grace, there is a new life to walk in. We can leave those sinful things behind. What is the re- what's been the result of that sin? We hurt others. We hurt ourselves. People have hurt us. That's not the people group I want to be involved in. I want those humble, meek, kind, compassionate people. That's the city on the hill. That's the consecrated people, the consecrated living, for lack of a better word. So when God says, holy, chosen, and beloved, I hope that, I hope that characterizes us, that the standard is that high. So that's, that's the holy part, right? What about, what about chosen, right? 
what do you think of when you think of the thought that God chose me? God chose you. God chose that person. Is there, is there a person that maybe, maybe they get on your nerves a little bit. Here's that person you're having trouble bearing with. You don't want to bear their burden with them. You think God chose them to be in this people group, this consecrated group. Right, it's one thing to think about God chose me, but oh, God chose God chose Donnie, God chose Wes. Right? How how much how much thought and planning did you have in choosing your brothers and sisters? Hopefully none, right? You can't you can't choose your brothers and sisters. God chose you me, them, that person to be in this family. I hope you find that liberating and not uh, confining. Uh, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you Here's this language again, out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has called us. He's pulled us out of darkness and into light. Me, you, that other person, he's making this family, this people group, chosen people. We're going to use a word that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But Ephesians 1, it talks, it says it in this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Sounds great so far. He's given us every blessing. Okay, keep going. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What? Before the foundation of the world, he chose me? chose this other people in this family? Why? I keep reading. That we should be holy, there it is again, holy, consecrated, and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace to which he blessed us in the Beloved. You and I have been chosen as sons and daughters to be in the family of God. If you're a believer in Christ, chosen to be in his family. Not, not begrudgingly. Um, I think Matt Chandler describes it as uh, God's not driving around in an ambulance responding to emergencies he never saw and said, oh yeah, I've got to make room for this one. got to make room for that one. Oh, geez, I didn't see this one coming. No, before the foundation of the world. Chose you. Chose me. Certainly humbling when I think about it for myself, but it makes me see the family of God in a different way. Right? Hopefully, I don't think about things 
and people in a merit-based system. Oh, geez. That, that person, if you knew what they had done, oh, I don't know. I don't know if you'd want them in the family. But no. God lovingly chose his family. So God has chosen us. He's, he's calling us to be this, this group of people, this family of God set apart. There's that, that last word. And that's the one we all want to latch on to, right? Beloved. His family is greatly loved by God. God loves his family. He, that, is, that is the message of the gospel, right? That we hear in, in that verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Think about that. We've moved from being, just like Paul did, he moved from being an enemy of God to he was a, a son. He was chosen to be a son. God had work for him to do, to plant churches. First John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might believe, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, another, another big word, to be the propitiation for our sins. Simply means a substitute, Right? All those things that in the, we, we do that we're ashamed of, all that sin, Jesus was that substitute. He paid the penalty. Our sin had earned us judgment under God, and Jesus paid that penalty. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to ought to love one another. Even when we talk about the love of God, there is this, this command, hey, since God has so loved us, let us love one another. Again, there's this idea of community. There's this idea of a group of people, a family. God has chosen this group of people. He set them apart. He, he bestows such great love on them. Why, why is this my favorite verse? When, I, when I'm dealing with the struggles of moving from the old life, when I, when I think about, oh, I messed up, you know, and I try to want to leave that sin behind and move into the walk in the things, good things God has for me, I'm tempted to, to fix things myself. Right? I'm an engineer. I like, to, I like to solve problems. I can fix this. I think, oh, I can, I can fix that. And that's, that's what was happening at this church in Colossae. They were trying to stop the indulgence of the flesh, so they said, hey, we can fix that. 
that, that Jesus, that gospel, it's taking too long or it's not working. You've got to fix it, tweak it, add something to it. And that, that's what we begin to do. This, this, this addition or subtraction or morphing of the gospel, it, it can swing in two different extremes. One, one extreme is what we would call legalism. Well, we, we start keeping kind of records on ourselves, right? Well, I messed up last week, but I did five good things for God, so I, I did God a solid. Hopefully he'll, he'll take that all into consideration. Maybe he'll bless me. Maybe he'll, he'll, look, he'll look good on me. If you stay in that mindset long enough, it's not enough to keep track of stuff just for you, you might start looking at that guy. I got to keep tabs on him because I might have to put him down to make me look better. God, I need to haggle with you. I need to justify myself before you. So, man, if if you knew what Ross was doing, I'm going to throw Ross under the bus so I can get on the bus, right? And that's where this system of legalism goes. It it says, oh, the gospel wasn't good enough. Let me, let me fix it. And we try to haggle and make a deal with God, and God's saying, the deal's already been done. I've already paid. Son, what are you, what are you doing? If you've ever been under that system of legalism and where people are keeping tabs, you're keeping tabs on yourself and you're keeping tabs on another one else, that's a miserable way to live. The flip side of that legalism is this thing that's been dubbed cheap grace. Anybody familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer? If you, if you haven't read his biography, go read it. It's better than any movie you're going to see. Um, he lived during the uh, World War II in German occup- German-occupied Germany. A phenomenal story. Phenomenal story. He put, he characterized cheap grace in this way. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is not the preaching of forgiveness, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without a cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's basically saying, I want to I stand justified before God. I want his forgiveness. I want that love. But the minute God starts saying, hey, you're in my family and our family does business like this. You say, wait a minute. I, I don't, that's not how I want to live my life. Right, some people call it Jesus is, is Lord and Savior. It's maybe an older term. Right, it, it, it begins to reject God as, hey, I don't, I don't want to submit to you, God. I just want forgiveness. Right, and that's, that's this idea of cheap grace. And that's, that's the, f- the other end of this twisting of the gospel. On one end, I'm trying to fix my problems, and I say, God, you're not good enough. I got it from here. On this end, you say, God, there's really nothing to fix. My life is okay. 
I don't need to be part of your family. I can do my own thing. So there's... That's not the gospel that caused Paul to change from Saul to Paul. That's not the gospel that I hope you would, you would preach, that you would say, oh, I believe that. It's not the gospel that will bring about change. It's not the gospel that will bring about the stopping of the indulgence of the flesh. It's not the gospel that will bring about that community we talked about, that city on the hill, that group of people that, yeah, I want to be part of that family. That's what I want to strive towards. What gospel could bring that about? The simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer would call this costly grace. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. A gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anybody who's labored under legalism can say that burden is not easy. That burden is not light. Anybody that has lived under cheap grace could say, well, what burden? They didn't didn't realize the whole burden of their own sin. I pray that as a church we hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would live as a family seeking after God. That our faith would continually rest only on the work of Jesus Christ. Because it's easy to have that one day, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. Some of us may have, have had that day as kids. Maybe for you it was more recent. But as time goes by, life happens. It begins to beat us up. We mess up. We we sin. Other people sin against us. Things enter in that, that cause us to maybe doubt that gospel that we first believe. Was that really enough to, to change me, to save me? I messed up. God, this other person messed up and it God it was is your grace really enough? Maybe you haven't had that moment yet. Maybe enough time and life hasn't gone by. But those doubts come. And when those doubts come, I I beg you, don't try to fix it yourself and fall into legalism. Don't lose heart and fall back into cheap grace and say, you know what? It's not worth following God anymore. Remember who you are as a believer in Christ. God has chosen you, called you, to live in his community. And he loves that community. He greatly loves that. That belief in that gospel, that will weather the storms of life. When we try to add to it, uh, it it crumbles. It It doesn't hold up. That belief in that gospel is what keeps us going. And that's why this is my favorite verse, because there's so many times life gets tough, life gets hard. Things happen and I can't say, why did this happen? 
I, I, I don't, God, I don't understand. Are you even here? Did you just see what happened? You, you may want to start thinking, well, maybe God's not worth following, so you, you may want to move into that, that cheap grace. Or maybe we get hurt by other people and say, I need to control everything, so you move into legalism. Things happen. Don't. When, when those storms of life come, stay centered in the gospel. Remember, God has chosen you, set apart as holy and beloved. There's no need for you to try to fix it. There's, there's no need to run away. Keep drawing near to God when those difficult things come. This, this simple gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus died in our place. Why did he have to die in our place? Why would I have had to die? Many of you can quote these verses right along. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And there's a consequence for that sin. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's not the end of the sentence, though. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you may be saying, I, I know this, I can quote these verses. It's easy to quote them here when we're sitting in a, a comfortable seat and, and air conditioning. and It's when life happens and it hits us unexpectedly. What do you fall back on? Do you fall back on your belief in this gospel? Well, well if the wages of my sin was death... We get to Colossians 2. And you who were dead in trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's a lot of legal language in here, but if you, if you pictured a piece of paper with everything, all the sin that you had, past, present, and future, if you can imagine that. God, as a just judge, would have, to, would have to judge that and say, I can't have that. And so that judgment he put on Jesus Christ. It says he nailed it to the cross. Past, present, and future, the record of all our transgressions. Do, do you do you believe that? When those moments of doubts and difficulties come, do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God has forgiven past, present, and future? He has covered that sin. If I don't, don't want to believe that he's covered all my sin, then I, I'll slide into legalism. I can fix it. If I don't believe that he's covered my sin, I'll slide into cheap grace. Well... I don't believe any of that anyway. It's he'll forgive my sin and no. If it feels like I'm poking at 
at the fundamentals. That's, that's what I'm doing. Do you believe the gospel? When this, when this record of our debt was nailed to the cross, Jesus died. Right? It's the obvious statement of the day. He didn't stay dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is a risen and resurrected Lord? In Luke 24, as they were talking about these things, Jesus had just been crucified and buried. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Can you imagine being talking about, well, Jesus just died and there he is. He says, Hey, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch my hands, touch my feet, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and they were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Are, are we like those disciples where we, we say, okay, yeah, believe that God died, Christ died for my sins, but that resurrection, do, do you really believe it? I find it almost comical that Jesus appeared to them and said, you got anything to eat? By the way, here are my hands and my feet. This, this is me. I have risen. I have an appetite. You have any food? The simple message of Christ crucified and resurrected. I hope this is the bedrock of your life. Because when difficult things come, what do you fall back on? I think that the book of Colossians would have us ask ourselves a couple of questions. Have I diluted the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're going to take a little time and just have a, some time to, to pray. Just, uh, I would consider, I would put forth, ask God this. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there is any way you have added or diluted the gospel. Has any form of legalism crept into your heart? Has cheap grace found it, your, its way into how you deal with God? I also ask you to consider, is there anything from the old sinful self that I'm holding on to? Any sin that I, I just I can't get rid of it. I don't want to let it go. I, I want to walk in this new life God's called me to, but I, I can't let this thing go. Have I diluted the gospel? And Is there any, any sin that I, I'm not leaving behind? And last, what is God calling me to do now?
Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what ways you can serve the family of God. How can I use my spiritual gifts? Do I know what my spiritual gifts are? Somebody who's rooted in the gospel and is in the process of leaving sin behind, they move into serving the family of God. They're not perfect. Please don't ever get the idea that you're going to be perfect and not, not mess up. So if we, if we have the band come back up and play a little music, if we just take a little time and, and think through those questions. Have I diluted the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there anything from the old sinful life that I'm still holding on to? What work is God calling me to do? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son. We thank you for the life that we lived. God, we thank you that he was willing to die and bear our burden to pay the cost for our sin. God, we thank you and praise you that Jesus is alive. God, I pray that each heart here would be challenged to continue in believing that gospel that we would not dilute it, we would not add anything to it, we wouldn't take anything away from that simple message, Lord. God, we wouldn't be convinced by philosophies and arguments of our day, and God, we wouldn't get beaten down by the struggles of life into not believing it, Lord. God, I pray that each one here would embrace the forgiveness you offer of our sins and that we would go and sin no more, that we would be that the people that city on a hill that the world would look at and say, God, there, there must be God there. Look at those people. God, I pray we would represent you well. God, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.